welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. I have always wanted to go to Il Cinema Retrovado, which is a storied annual film festival in Bologna, where they show the latest in restorations, very exactingly curated and sourced retrospectives, all in the very intense heat <laughs> of Italy in the summer. But that doesn't keep anyone away because it's you know, it's quite an event every single year. So I'm always jealous of everyone who gets to go. In this case, uh, I have a very special correspondent, you could say, previously a guest to talk about his film, Friends and Strangers. Uh, and I'm very glad to have him back to talk about his experience seeing movies at Il Cinema Retrovado. Uh, welcome, James Vaughn. How are you doing? Hey, Nick. How's it going? I'm very good. Very good. Excited to talk about movies again. Thanks for having me back. Yeah. You see, you're, you're a victim of your own selection of silent films from that we talked about before, because I had such a good time both watching them and, and, and talking about those. So when you mentioned that you would be going to Il Cinema Retrovado, that was a little kind of a perfect match. How did you find the, how did you find the festival? I had an amazing time. Part of it is, you know, in general, I, I've had a, a great time since the film you know, I've finally been released of commitments to do with Friends and Strangers and I made sure I had a bit of time after that to do a whole lot of, you know, either not much or following different things, rabbits down holes, and one of those was going to Bologna. I'd heard a lot of people talking about, more recently actually, about this festival, but a few years ago I'd never even heard of it, but I got involved with a little film festival in Sydney called Cinema Reborn, which is very much inspired by Il Cinema Retrovado. And um, none of those guys involved there could come this year. And they, and I was in Europe and they said, why don't you go? So yeah, as soon as I looked into it, I was like, wow, this is kind of incredible. I don't know how I, this hadn't been on my radar. It's such a beautiful city, Bologna. It's cozy, it's small, it's, it's very walkable. A lot of the streets don't have cars on them. And the cinemas are probably all within five, 10 minutes of each other. The food is incredible. Uh, the gelato is amazing. I was eating probably like 500 to 500 grams to a kilo of ice cream a day. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a really fun environment and the people are really lovely too. So I don't know if you like movies, it's just, there's nothing you're not gonna like about Bologna. And you mentioned uh, Cinema Reborn. I guess some of the films you saw might be showing in, in, in that festival because it's it sort of specializes in the best in, in restorations, right? Yeah, it's it's very much inspired by Il Cinema Ritrovato and the guy who started it, Jeff Gardner, was the, the artistic director of Melbourne Film Festival at one point. Uh, a long time ago, and a lot of the other people involved on the on the committee are kind of people who've yeah sort of elder figures in the Australian the world of cinephilia and and very respected, cool people. So it's a real privilege to be I guess part of a conversation, and and they really are just like quite casual conversations about what films we've liked that are on the table from from new restorations each each year. But yeah, I'm coming back to the to the negotiation room uh, with a bunch of <laughs> titles that yeah i'll strongly advocate for them that'll be fun this year yeah so you, you'll be the one bringing the uh a treasure chest of, uh, of, of goodies yes i'm trying to strong arm strong arm <laughs> <laughs> okay and well i mean one movie that you saw um i think probably sounded like it was your, your favorite there uh, was a movie by a director that i think a lot of people are really curious about because i, I feel like she hasn't gotten a lot of retrospectives or kind of proper due um I mean, I remember there was maybe a pretty thorough one in like the 2000s, I want to say, in New York. Kira Boratova, I think. And the film is The Long Farewell. So, yeah, if you could tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I went into this film knowing nothing about her and um, I'd never heard of her. And I, I don't know, from the first minutes, I was like, wow, this, I'm, I just really connected to the film and a lot of things about the film. There was a restless, I mean, some of it is, is maybe seeing some things that links to, to things I'm, in, I'm inspired by in a, in a kind of selfish way as a filmmaker. There were things that I, that Muratova or, or Muratova, I'm not sure either how you pronounce her name, but um, Muratova, just from being put in front of the yeah the first minutes of this film, there were themes and and I guess aesthetic preoccupations and things that I was instantly just totally totally on board with and yeah hadn't hadn't seen anything like 
before. I found it hard to compare. Maybe maybe to to Alexei Gurman, though there's some mm. some connections. Um, it, very singular, strong artistic voice. And this film is about a mother and her son. And I guess the title tells you something about what's happening uh, from the from the beginning. And it's a son who's kind of growing distant from his mother and growing apart from his mother. And at a certain point in the film, we learn has decided to go and live with his father who who's separated from his mother. And that's after the very start of the film, he's just come back from a trip to see his, his father. And the film is this kind of protracted uh, drift between the two, but it never quite happens. And I guess the fact that it never what happens is characteristic of Muratova uh, and her, her interest in general. Things are always almost and, and not quite. And we see traces of things in fragments. Mm. And it's just, yeah, a fascinating, a fascinating approach that sort of finds its way into all of her formal choices as well. The way she edits and the way she uses sound and, and the way she writes dialogue and the way the camera moves. There's an elliptical restlessness that is yeah really really wonderful i I just adored the film am i right i when when i was looking up a bit about the movie which yeah i I really want to see is that it was filmed in the early 70s i guess 71 or something like that but it wasn't actually released until later on that's right yeah it's it was banned by yeah the soviet union I, i think they they found it too bourgeois and too to Western and in the introduction, there's really another great part of the festival at Bologna is they have either the people involved in the restoration in a technical sense or, or just the curators um, introducing a lot of the things, sometimes filmmakers too, if they're alive. It was a really great introduction for this film. Unfortunately, I can't remember the name of the guy, but yeah, he was talking about that Muratova more than probably any of the other Soviet filmmakers had an affinity, I guess, with Western European auteur cinema and um yeah I, I can see the links but but i think maybe me saying that it sounds making it sound like there's some kind of imitation which i don't think there is either but i think the soviet senses i think they probably sense that on some mm-hmm. kind of spider level that <laughs> this maybe was yeah someone who's not that interested in glorifying workers and the, even the apartment that the protagonist uh, lives in is an older style apartment, and yeah, the sort of traces of a of a different kind of individualism. I mean, I think I think a big part of why they they banned the film was the lead character too. Just in, in the way that I could imagine a lot of you know funding agencies in Western capitalist countries would probably say some similar things. Like this is an unlikable woman who's not particularly interesting or uh, unique, and she doesn't. You know, there's nothing in this film that is catching into in terms of the the story. Nothing really happens, which is another thing I love about the film. I mean, it's a it's a it's a film of uh, moments and and sequences and characters being in the presence of one another. And you talk about we try and try and reduce it to plot points, and it's impossible. But there's like a, an incredible vitality in those moments and in the way that she constructs scenes. She does really interesting things like repeats in the editing. I mean, it, it, as an editor, it's, it's, I found I, the film is, is so inspiring. Mm-hmm. She'll occasionally just repeat, include different takes one after the other. And it's not something that's like a self-conscious experimentation. Like oh, I'm, I'm making experimental maneuvers here. It's, it's almost like you forget she's done things like that. And that's the moment she, she brings it back because there's other scenes that are extended long takes that are much more about characters and in a, in a more classical way, uh, you know, interaction or tension between two characters is just, yeah, I love that she tries things and, and moves one in one way or another. And is kind of elusive as a filmmaker. Yeah. And when you're talking about using a couple of takes in a row, I, I happened to watch Taxi Driver again recently, and there's always a moment in one of those monologues that strikes me, which he starts to starts a monologue, and then he just they just restart it basically. You know, he's like, he says like, "Listen up, all you," and then they just start it again. He goes, "Listen up," <laughs> you know, just yeah. like, I'm sure it's a little different than what's going on in this film, but it sets you off balance that kind of device in a really interesting way. Yeah, I mean, it's something that echoes has echoes in the way that the characters speak too, they sometimes repeat themselves and like, it seems scripted too. Mm-hmm. There's this sense of her as an artist. I don't know if, 
like some kind of analogy to, to painting or, or drawing, sort of redrawing over the line or, over and over again, trying to find the the authentic or, or the the essential. There's something almost cubist about the way that she repeats things. I, I, I don't know if it's, is it those Picasso, early early Picasso paintings where there's, there's the different views of the same person sort of in mm. in kind of smudged forms and there's yeah the, there's something like that with Muratova's the, the way she approaches moments um, that she's searching for something some perspective on something and circling around something that there's no definitive version but there's some poetry in the movement around some central magnetic force and I mean, I, I don't, I'm honestly not familiar with, with the actress, but I'm kind of curious what you thought of her because it sounds like a great character for someone to dig into. Yeah, she apparently was a legendary stage actress, but had never been put in a film before. And her own account of that was that she just wasn't attractive enough. And maybe she'd been told that too by, by film directors that she's put in a box that you don't have a face for cinema. And I, I think this might've been one of her only roles, but she takes what could be a an annoying character in some ways it's a a mother who's who's quite neurotic and the film probably in some ways puts you on the side of the sun which is interesting for Muratova it's not that she takes the side I mean you're not on anyone's side really but I think you as a viewer do get a little bit tired of of the mother's badgering in the film and she gives that character so much grace despite what you see is yeah someone who has some ruts in terms of how she thinks about things and how she communicates and and can be repetitive and and sort of blunt to to social cues at times and which is probably part of what the censors were concerned about that this wasn't an idealized view of, of anything it's not even an idealized view of motherhood because she's kind of desperate in the way she's clinging on to her to her son um, and she's stalking him at, at one point and when he's having conversations about possibly going to live with her father and then she also tries to to intercept the the mail that her father's sending that his father's sending to him so that there's there's sort of a there's an unlikable but but there's something also you know you feel for her it's just it's coming from a place of love it's coming from the place of a woman who's lost for one reason or another her husband she's someone that's that's been left behind and is alone and and now her son's decided that he can't be bothered with her either and you feel for her you you yeah that the, the actor gives her a grace that again like with a lot of other things in the film you can't quite pinpoint um you can't connect it to any any particular plot or anything she does but it's an amazing performance yeah no i mean i, I really i hope it makes its way here at some point so that's the the long farewell i think yeah i think that's 1971 or so i guess not released until or not shown as widely until like the late 80s or something, Perestroika era. I don't really have a great segue to another film that was on your, your viewing list, um, but I think that's kind of a testament to the variety, really, of, of the festival because they they just go total commitment to like a whole different range of like genres and, and traditions. And I think, you know, they always have a healthy strain of comedies. So, I mean, one that sounded kind of interesting was called I by day, you by night. Am I right that the premise here is that it's it's uh, a man and a woman who are kind of switching off, uh, sharing the same apartment? That's right, yeah. Apparently this film has been, I think there's an, one or more American films that have kind of a similar uh, setup, but it's a musical comedy from this very short, very interesting period of German sound cinema before the Nazis took power in 33 and after sound appears. I think the first one from this in, in this mold was like maybe 1929. And so this is one of a program of, of these films that I guess haven't been very widely seen and aren't nearly as well known as the films by other German language filmmakers who maybe made it to, to the US uh, in the 30s. The director here is Ludwig Berger, um, and like the other directors in this section of the festival, I, I didn't recognize any of their names. But this is a extremely charming, delightful, heartwarming film. The premise is, as you said, it's it's two 
working class, fairly chipper characters, uh, but who are obviously struggling financially to, to the point where they're, they're sharing a bed where one works a night shift and sleeps in the bed in the day and the other works a day and sleeps in the bed at night. They meet outside of the apartment and, you know, it's like a love at first sight kind of thing, but don't realize that they, they, they live in, in the same not just live in the same apartment, but the same bed and they actually hate each other. It's kind of a it's part of the comedy is that the one is, is often, you know, doing things or leaving things in a way that causing inconvenience to the other. And it's, I don't know, it's, it's, it sounds kind of twee, but the charm and the, the wit and the kind of color and magic and the, the musical elements too. There's just, there's just a verve that uh, is, is hard to describe, but, is in all of these all of these German musical comedies. It was yeah, there's just something really delightful about them. Yeah, I only realized when when you started talking about it that it was in a series uh, that showed at MoMA Weimar Cinema, um, which was a series I really loved because it was it just felt like this whole stratum of of movies. Yeah, and it did remind me. Yeah, when when you start talking about it, I, there's, there's like a Gene Arthur movie, The More the Merrier, that I think. Ah, involves like people yeah it's one of maybe that's one of the american comedies um where they're switching off sharing an apartment i think in dc and i mean it's interesting that like they're different kind of historical contexts uh i mean in that case i guess there's a housing shortage uh is is in the 40s i guess war related shortage i don't know what the weimar context was but it it certainly puts to shame any kind of roommate uh, story, <laughs> disaster roommate story, actually having to share. <laughs> yeah, off the bed. Yeah, and, and it's they're so kind of cheerful about the whole thing. I guess historically, I don't know what you know, um, Great Depression era, like whether this was actually a common, a common thing. But it's a, a through line in these films, like I guess it is in some of the, the you know U.S. Um, early early musicals as well. Um, these kind of working class characters, um, drifters, and and people who work in itinerant sort of jobs. You're, you're certainly like on the on their side, hoping that that, that luck turns for them. But um, it's something that was in common in, in across these across these films is characters like this and and that economic distress, but presented in a kind of frivolous and and fun and and funny way and I think a lot of this was you know it didn't just come out of nowhere it came out of the cabaret and and theater and comedy scene which in its in that own in that little world it was really developed and and there were stars and musicians and and the people that wrote the music for these films they they were 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 all quite experienced in that context so it was a, a transfer of skills which probably explained why they feel so accomplished and why they're so refined in a lot of ways, even though uh, with the, the introduction of sound, it was it was just such a short period. But yeah, I, I think they're ripe for for wider appreciation because they're just some of the yeah, best musicals I've seen. Even though this one, I by Day, You by Night, doesn't actually have, and that's part of part of what's great about it is that it it has a kind of reflexive or at least considered approach to the use of music in the film. There's a lot of music, but the characters live next to or on top of, I can't really remember, um, a cinema. And the, the, the male lead, his best friend, is a projectionist. And often things that are happening in the film uh, are happening in proximity to the, the open doors of the, of the cinema and we we kind of cut into scenes from act, other rom-coms, I guess, that, that are playing, um, or musicals rather, that are playing in Germany at the time. And yeah, it's just an interesting way of, of marrying form and, and trying, to, trying to thread some causality and, and kind of, yeah, there's a sort of ironic self, self-awareness and, and, it, and there's something self-deprecating about it too because, yeah, there's an inherent comedy, I suppose, to the these over-the-top musical numbers in, in the films being echoed in in the lives of these fairly downtrodden characters. Yeah, no, that's, I, I, like, I like that idea that, that there's, they're living their real lives uh, versus <laughs> what's going on in the screen, but also their real life happens to sound like it does, is the premise. <laughs> yeah. It's like a sitcom sort of, sort of premise. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, this actually, it seems like maybe a good film to talk about next would be The Cabinet of Dr. Larafari, 
just because it sounds like that one is also a, a German comedy for one thing, although not specifically about the movie whose title it echoes, right? Yes, yes. So it's a bizarre film, the the strangest film I saw <laughs> at the the festival easily. It's real like kind of anarchic comedy. I don't know much about the, the director, Robert Walmuth, but I think the main actor in it, Max Hansen, was like a, a major figure in the comedy and cabaret scene in, in Weimar, Germany. But the premise of the film is three friends are uh, having a, a beer and decide that they're going to start a production company, a film production company to make uh, films. And it's just this quite surreal turn where all of a sudden they are millionaire cigar chewing kind of executives and there's no real explanation. <laughs> they just are um, after, after it's proposed and after a few, a few kind of flimsy sort of concerns are, you know, that are, are, that are dealt with in terms of their strategy. They just, they suddenly are these people and they, they enter this kind of castle in a limousine and, yeah, there, there's like a gigantism to to the vehicle that they're in and the and the building that's now their office. It's it's just kind of ridiculous. And then they they come in and and they start going, okay, well now that we have a production company, we need to work out what we're going to make. And the three of them, I guess the film structure from there is that one of them says, well, what about we do this? And then we see a sketch of of that film, and that happens three times. It's it's very like internet humor, internet comedy, anarchic kind of yeah nineties onwards. But I think it has links to that kind of cabaret comedy scene and that actor Max Hansen, who I think was it was a figure in that. And from the program notes of the festival, this team didn't really get to do much much else. And like I mean, it's like a lot of the films in this series. It's just this tiny flash of of a moment, and we kind of are lucky to be able to treasure and cherish what's there but it's also there's something sad about it because you know german cinema this never comes back in some ways there's nothing mm. like this in in the years after second world war you know there's a different cultural mood after that for obvious reasons and yeah it's just a, a window into a different trajectory of cinema in germany at least yeah yeah i i, I think i like that you compare it to internet kind of comedy or I, it also sounds like almost like a little bit Marx Brothers where like from one shot to the next people will suddenly just yeah be, have a costume yes or that's a good that's a good comparison I think that is <laughs> that is yeah I mean I'm uh, for some reason with the sketches and the the sort of rearrangement of the same people I I thought a little bit of um in another country Hong Sang Su's film where where you have the the film student who's kind of writing a script and and dozing off and and the thing that she's writing, you know, we, we just instantly kind of kind of go to that, and it's the rearrangement of the same sort of characters as as a daydream. It's not a, it's not a perfect comparison at all, but something about that kind of structural freedom. I was reminded of that a little bit watching this film. But it's hard, yeah, it's hard to to think of other examples as really original, striking film. The title again is uh, the Cabinet of Dr. Lara Fari. In the notes. Told me that larifari, I guess, means kind of ch- chatter or like just nonsense talk a little bit. Um, mm. That's <laughs> kind of... yeah. well. I maybe we can talk about another movie you saw that I have seen, and that is uh, a Bunuel movie. Maybe weirdly, like one of his lesser known movies. Uh, I guess when he was making movies in Mexico, and that is L. That was another one of your favorites. Yes, great film. I'm. No Bunuel expert. I've I don't know. Maybe seen five of his films or something, and he's made so many, and it's always been like oh, I want to see more and more. So when when I saw this in the program, I was like perfect, yeah, opportunity to see uh, one of his lesser known films in a new restoration, but also one that apparently is very highly regarded. I'd seen Simon of the Desert, which I think is another Mexican era film of his oh yeah which is quite out there you know and it's like the things that he's he's known for it's kind of on the on one end of that um so i was i've maybe just assumed that oh this mexican phase must have been like a crazy crazy phase but (laughs) this film is quite classical and quite formally restrained and there aren't so many of those touches but just such a powerful study of quite an insane and unwell man you know what did you think of the film nick you're introduced to this guy who is like 
already a little unbalanced, I think, um, and is interested in a young woman who is you know already involved with someone else. But I mean, to be honest, the part that I really mostly remember is when they're married, these two characters, and he is, as I recall, just this kind of like paranoid, jealous. It's not like filtered through the usual like melodramatic, you know. Yeah, it's um, very unglamorous. It's it's and, and yeah. ugly and and scary. Um, yeah, you're, you're sort of from very early on in the film quite scared for this woman's safety. Um, and maybe that yeah, there's something interesting in how Bunuel approaches subjects in that way that they're there's, they're totally unvarnished and he kind of reveals people without without trying to dress them up too much for, or make them palatable and part of what's interesting with this film too is that it's told in a kind of crisscrossing sort of flashbacks and um different person's accounts of things and at some certain points different characters are foregrounded in that but you're definitely um seeing this this whole thing sort of through um oh gloria Glor- is it gloria Glor- yeah from her perspective you're sort of with her, but you, you know that you're waiting for this just to kind of get worse and worse, and, and it does. But it's hard to think of a better portrait of a domineering, insecure, petty dictator and how that plays out when applied to a, to a relationship. Um, you know, from my own life, having female friends, having heard about it, people's experiences with possessive domineering men, boyfriends or, or, or whatever. It, it's, yeah, it's, it's something that we all know is a huge threat for, for women in the world. It's something that women have to deal with often in a, in a silent way. And this film really kind of needles at that. The difficulty of being believed when you're trying to talk about these things too is something that the film explores that how, how clever he is in manipulating the other people in her life, including her own mother, making her gaslighting, I guess is the word, making other people who are close to her, get her to question her own sanity and her own judgment about, about things. But yeah, by the end it becomes clear that he's deranged and yeah, the film starts to use my only criticism of the film. And I, I love the film, but Towards the end, I feel like Bunuel introduces some elements pretty removed from stylistically from the rest of the film. Like there's scenes towards the end where he's trying to convey the paranoia of Francisco, um, and we hear mm. this. You know, we have scenes where like everyone turns to him in in a room of just people going about their business, and they're all laughing at him in the face. And there's nothing, you know, Bunuel. He's a genius. He's a master. He knows what he's doing, but for me, I I feel like he probably laid it on more than he needed to at, at the end. Was my only feeling. Um, I was distanced a little bit from from because the rest of it is so. Yeah, there's like a, a naturalism and a psychological. He, he really underplays it. You, you're just seeing things as they are in quite a, and that's part of what's so chilling about it. You just in quite a bland sort of way. You're seeing this play out without any of those flourishes. It just seems a kind of exploding of like the myth of like machismo or something i mean mm. here that that kind of mastery of the household or of the family or of holding someone in your sway in a way that is obviously not a, not appropriate is is made very apparent how how you know how that gets toxic yeah interesting and just how yeah it's you, you said unglamorous before like absolutely i mean the the I was, I remember being like actually disturbed and wondering how this scene even could stay in a movie at the time. Isn't there a scene where he, the jealous husband is like sitting on a stairwell and just kind of like banging against yes. the banisters? Yeah. And he just goes on and on and yeah. on that shot. Yeah. It's so good. It's my favorite moment in the film. I'm glad you yeah. brought that up. It's just, it's, it's amazing. He's just, he's got like a, I don't know if it's a fire poker. I can't remember what it is or something, but he's just, he's just banging it between two banisters in the, on the staircase. And it's just like making this, this God awful sound. And she, I think she's in a different wing of the house or something. And, and it's just listening to this, like, yeah, this nightmarish sound, but it just, yeah, it goes on and on and on. It's, and it's, yeah, it becomes, and, and perhaps differently to, to some of the ways he, he, he shows 
the, the mental state toward the end where he's, he's, I guess, in an abstract way, you know, getting, getting people to, to perform the state of this character's thoughts. In this, it's like that, in that moment, it's amazing because it's, it, it somehow becomes surreal, but at the same time, it's still, it's still very much um, within the, the, the realm of normal behaviour. And there's other yeah. parts in the film that he goes from like threatening to kill her basically to, you know, like hunched in a ball, kind of crying and begging for, begging for, for forgiveness. Like he's, he, that's that's what's part of what's so brilliant about the way the film presents. And as you said, yeah, it just cuts down machismo um, is the pathetic flip side of that kind of controlling behaviour, the, yeah. the kind of insecurity and and crippling self-doubt and and yeah just the tiny the tiny fragility is sort of what motivates those those power grabs and that attempt to control those attempts to control other people yeah and and, i mean it always it's always something that's kind of interesting to think about too is what surreal means in his films like was that surreal or was he just kind of dramatizing something that seemed so outside of like the usual experience you're Mm -hmm. seeing on screen that it's treated as surreal, which almost seems like a, a diffusing critical mechanism. It's like, yeah. oh, that's surreal, but it's like, I don't know. I mean, it's like, isn't there like a seventies Benwell that has like a terrorist bombing is like in it? I'm forgetting which one. And it's like, yeah, I guess that's surreal. Or that was like the 1970s in Europe or something. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's that's another thing. Just like melodramas, they're often just like a avenue to untold chapters of, I guess, especially experience for for women on film. You know, and I watched a whole bunch of John Stahl over the winter, and yeah, I just always felt I was seeing stories that just weren't weren't really on screen otherwise. Interesting. I haven't seen any any films by him. I had seen like a, a handful, and then I was I had to write something, so I was seeing a whole bunch of them. Couldn't be further removed from the style of this film, but. Yeah, L has always has always stuck with me. I, I think on some level, I'm like afraid to to watch it again because I think I saw it in it like film form or something. It wasn't like a big audience, so just like you just, I just felt like I was cornered in the room with this guy. You know? Yeah, it's just... yeah. And I guess all the characters in the film kind of feel like that too. You know, you, yeah. Everyone's just like, oh, because he's such a he's such a probably should should mention he's such a dominant figure in in his in his own culture uh th- this character he's like a property magnate he's super rich he he's mm-hmm. a highly successful businessman who has everything he wants uh he's apparently never dated so a kind of a, a strange yeah 40 year old virgin kind of but 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 <laughs> twisted um right. and his relationship to power is that that adds to 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 it and I, a film I saw straight after this in the program that had a kind of yeah that synchronized with it a bit was the Offal's film Court, mm. which I don't know if you've you've seen, but um, it's also kind of some similarities in a way about more from uh, I guess the the female protagonist perspective in in that film, but yeah, big performance from this kind of tycoon who is is sort of right. monstrously possessive and yeah I don't know it was funny seeing those two films back to back. Yeah, no, that's that's the one with that. That's Robert Ryan, right? And James Mason. That's yes, the, yes. The two, the two poles of a of a, of a masculine dapper, archetypes. Was, in that movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you said um, when you said the terrorist scene, it made me think of one of my favorite moments in a in a film, and it's a Manuel de Oliveira film. I think it's from one of his '90s films, and it's a film that's like it's kind of a domestic. In his in his kind of indescribable sort of style, a domestic drama of sorts. But at the end, there's this. Actually, he does he does this in a few of his films because he also does it in a talking picture, which has John Malkovich in it, and that's a film that is like mostly set on this cruise ship, but ends with this bizarre terrorism scene in a talking picture it's like they're just having this kind of dinner discussion and the, yeah it's all kind of very prosaic and, and pleasant and nice and and like the, the discussions are very cerebral and and sort of aristocratic almost I guess and then there's this like announcement over the PA that there's been a terror like a bomb 
has been placed on the boat and they all need to be yeah. evacuated and um, they all get off. And then the, the final frame is like this freeze frame on John Malkovich's face, like this horrified look as the boat just blows up. And I shouldn't be laughing because it's not, I mean, it's, there's nothing funny about it, but there is, yeah, it's certainly surreal. But like you said, is, is it surreal? I don't know. Is this just a filmmaker who's, who's responding to things that were, were certainly happening in the world uh, at that time? And another film ends with, yeah, out of nowhere, these like terrorists, these hooded terrorists burning this club, club down. It just doesn't, is, doesn't gel with, with the rest of the film. And yeah, I don't know. Is that sur- surrealism? Um, if yeah. it is, I like that kind of surrealism Yeah, where you don't know how you meant, quite meant to take it um, because it's naturalism in a sense that, that no one's doing anything that's, that, I, yeah, that's outside the, the normal rules of, of behavior or of, or of what, what goes on in the world. But there's something just in the placement of it, I guess, that, that makes it feel dreamlike. Yeah, and especially with, I, I love the, the comparison to the Oliveira movies. I mean, yeah, I'm trying to remember how, how people took it. I think people were just respectful of a uh, talking picture, but it was almost, I guess, September 11th, it just uh, attacks were like just two years before. So, ah, oh, so it was after that, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So it might be, I mean, it might be especially interesting to look at it now when that isn't as fresh because it's, in the context of his films also where there's often this kind of kind of surveying the folds of memory and just finding different ways to frame and reframe our, our memories in the past. And in this case, it's like you have that cosmopolitan flow on the boat and then it's, there's this rupture, um, just sort of yeah. something, something different than a more ludic or like contemplative thinking about memory. It's like, Oh, here, yeah. History is changing <laughs> right yeah. at that second. Yeah. I mean, it makes so much sense, so much more sense to me when you put it in that historical context. And I'm trying to remember what the other film, the one that ends with the club, it might have been The Uncertainty Principle, actually, which looking up is 2002. So mm. it makes, okay. yeah, that it just, that's it. <laughs> yeah, that would be it, yeah. yeah. And, then he, and then he did it again. That's funny because I, I, I remember a talking picture getting distribution I'm not sure if Uncertainty Principle got the same, uh, got the same exposure. I mean, I remember Talking Picture, I just remembering the kind of marketing of it. I mean, that's not, not something that they necessarily would foreground how, <laughs> how it ends. It's like people didn't know how much to talk about, to talk about that ending or not. And the poster, I think, was just like a, a, a woman and a child, like looking out on the water. So yeah. I wouldn't really guess anything. <laughs> that's probably just as well, because it kind of preserves the surprise of it. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, yeah, so that all came out of talking about L, uh, the Well movie. And I guess maybe there's just maybe one more movie that you watched that we haven't talked about. Um, although if you want to just mention quickly this interesting kind of Iranian, Armenian-Iranian movie, uh, The Spring, um, just because I think you said the director was there. Yes, Abi Ovanesian. We were lucky to have him there for the introduction and... It was a really beautiful film. It was interesting, another pre-revolutionary, always, always interesting to see pre-revolutionary Iranian films. And we showed one of them at Cinema Reborn last year, a film called The Deer, which is about a kind of heroin addict in the streets of Tehran. So, just, I mean, just, yeah, things that if, if your experience of, of Iranian cinema is, is from after 79, it's like things that you just you don't think are possible in Iranian cinema and it's yeah and this film is not exactly like that but more symbolic and in many ways like more links to stylistically I guess what we've come to I saw a lot of links to like a Kiristami rhythm even though there was a, a darkness probably that is is not so much a feature of, of Kiristami but yeah it was just a tempo and I I say the word tempo because in the introduction he made a real point of it and he didn't mention Kiristami by name but he said at this point you know in Iranian cinema in 70 I think it was 72 that the film was released there was no Iranian style basically there was there was mimicry of French and American syntax and grammar and in particularly the editing he made a point of, of talking about and that it was his 
desire with this film to create an Iranian cinema, an Iranian a tempo that was that was particularly uh, and specifically Iranian. And he yeah he underlined tempo as as the word that he wanted to use and not rhythm which is interesting because you always hear people talking about rhythm in, in editing and um, he didn't really elaborate on that, but it just kind of stuck with me that he was like, not rhythm, tempo, tempo. Oh, interesting. But yeah, it was uh, a lot of the, yeah, the, the, the beautiful and poetic use of landscape and of an extended kind of languid temporality and people in, in, in space mixed with kind of poetic cuts of, of rivers and things. I mean, there's even a shot that... I think it's that amazing scene in close up when I think Kiristami does it a couple of times. There's definitely that one, that moment in close up, the can rolling down the hill. Mm. But there's a moment in the spring that's yeah, really kind of similar. A character throws a a glass of water that they're drinking. These other men are, are sitting around in a circle mourning uh, a character who's towards the, the start of the film passed away, and the the each saying something about him. The dialogue is all very poetic. And after the last character says something, he throws his, everyone drinks except one person. He throws it in the creek. And in this kind of heavy way, the, the glass lands in, on the stones in this shallow stream. And um, mm. we watch the, the water slowly, or the, the contents of the glass slowly come out. And then the camera drifts. The glass doesn't move, but the camera drifts down the, down the stream. And this, amazing beautiful music um begins and yeah i was i mean just couldn't help but think of kiristami straight away and yeah. he didn't mention kiristami's introduction but he was like the filmmakers that you're that you all are familiar with <laughs> i don't know if there was like because i think this is his only feature and it's mm-hmm. so obscure um i don't know if there's yeah a sense of for him that he hasn't been recognized or, or credited with with some things that we now you know, strongly associate with Iranian cinema, but um, yeah, yeah, it was an amazing film. I hope it sort of appears in a in a better form because, if I'm remembering right, it wasn't actually a film that was had been restored for. Unlike most of what is shown, Richardo, I think this was just they were just showing the print as is. So, I, mm. yeah, if if that's true, then maybe it doesn't mean there's going to be you know a, a nice DCP Blu-ray or whatever that comes out. But I hope I hope so. Yeah, yeah. It's so fascinating seeing movies before the revolution, just of, of any sort, just to see, especially when they're connections like you, like you saw, you know. I mean, another one comes to mind uh, that I saw, I want to say I saw it at this festival that was a, a number of years in New York uh, called Migrating Forms, The Mongols. It was from Iran from like 73, so like right around same period. Mm. And it was it was kind of a similar thing where I, I kind of saw some echoes because it's, it's a very like reflexive movie. It's about a filmmaker who's, I forget what, but he's working on some project, but there's this constant kind of reflexivity about filmmaking going on. Mm. And, and I think he like, he has like visions or, or of, of like Mongols from the past, like coming to life and somehow in, involving themselves in some assignment he has to work on. But it was, it was a similar cool. kind of thing, just that, that kind of self-awareness. I have to say, what was the title again? I think it's called The Mongols. And the director is Kimi Avi. It'd be cool to see a series that was pre-revolutionary Iranian cinema. Yeah. Well, we can, I think we can probably start to come to a conclusion and I think have a good short film that's kind of very irreverent, I think kind of a nice note to, to end on. And that's Contrast City from Jibril Diop Mambeti, who everyone knows from uh, Tokibuki and Hyenas, uh, which I think have been recently restored. But this is a short, actually is on Criterion Channel, so everyone can go check check out a version of it there. I don't know when they when they put that on. Maybe they just put it on. I was so charmed by this film. It was in a double bill with Badu Boy, which is like an early feature of Mambeti. And I like that too, and equally funny and exuberant, but I was really taken by this short and it's, I guess, in that kind of city symphony kind of thing, but it's there's sort of fictionalized elements to it too with, with these voiceovers between two characters um, set in Dakar and uh, in, in Senegal. And I think it's actually voiced by Mambetti, the, the male character, talking to a, a French uh, female 
uh, who's yeah, and they're, and they're kind of going back and forth in this, this scripted dialogue that's finding its echoes in the the shots. And I mean, the the film is about Dakar as a city that exists in, in I guess on two levels as a as a former French colony, but also you know as, as a as a city that has nothing to do with, with France as well and so it's 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 kind of meditating on the colonial architecture and the surfaces of the vestiges of colonization but what i loved about it is these moments that bleed out into just pure observation and with the most amazing beautiful music it drifts from quite an ironic and funny and biting satire of of i guess the colonial the french colonial elements of the city to these yeah very organic and open-ended observational sequences of the of the city uh, and and people just going going about their lives but yeah it's just i don't know it's the combination of both those things that's really beautiful and Badu Boy is more in the it's more like a has like the energy of a farce it's like very high energy the whole the whole way through but I liked this film has these like two registers that it sort of floats between yeah it really is also like multiple voices it's not just like one sarcastic voice he's he's often laying in different voices and sounds and I, I don't know there was one shot where I think it's just supposed to be like a, a joke basically where two women are kind of cooing yes over these western magazines and and it's so good yeah yeah I, this, they're they're <laughs> they're looking yeah exactly it's like i laughed out loud in the cinema in that in that scene it's like i think they're just passing french like fashion magazines to each other and sort of hardly really looking at them but then you have this voiceover that's like almost orgasmic like yeah yeah it's so so sarcastic but it's 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 so good like it's yeah it's really funny yeah and even even the the opening it starts it starts off as if it's the start to a different documentary, like they start or to a to a like a straight up documentary, like the voiceover talks about France or Paris, and then someone interrupts. Yeah, and says, this isn't <laughs> this isn't France. Yeah, I've seen um, now only three of his films, like those two in that program and Tukibuki, which is amazing. That energy and that sense of lightness that seems to be a characteristic of his of his work that he can. He can try things, and I mean, Muratova. It's 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 the same. Like doing things that just if you write down like this is my intention to do this, it's like that's not going to work. I don't, you know, you, you won't be able to do that. But something in in the kind of conviction or in the essence of, of them as artists, it just it works perfectly. And anything else would seem wrong. Yeah, I was just reading an interview with him too. I mean, he's like. <laughs> yeah definitely just blazing his his own path he, he's just like premise of every question he's just questioning i think Murata was a bit like that too i read an interview with her where she's like what no what do you mean <laughs> yeah. try it. rephrase the question yeah 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 all right well i mean that's the great thing is that you you even saw even more than that but these are just highlights well yeah i didn't even get to go into some of the sort of big ticket items which i won't talk about the films but just the experience of seeing um, like Nosferatu and, and Foolish Wives, which is one of my favorite, you know, favorite ever films, mm. like seeing them in the Piazza Maggiore, which is like the main square in Bologna where I don't know how many, like that, like thousands and thousands of, of people. And it's, you know, it's people who are like traveling for the festival, but also just, just local people. Um, you're in a public square, so anyone can come and stand there with, with a drink or, or ice cream or whatever and, and watch for a bit or watch the whole thing. And, but, but people are really there to see films too. You know, people come get there early and get a spot. And uh, I don't know, it's just like I saw an Anouk of the North in, in, a, in another smaller piazza on a carbon arc projector, which is, I think, yeah, in like the silent era, the, the, the technology that they used for projection, which is, is different and the projectors are huge and more, they consume wow. more power, but, I don't know. It's just like, yeah, it's it's amazing seeing films on film and and having, I should say, not everything you know they show on film, but it's it's amazing seeing these restored versions of, of films, and that's one thing. But something else that's great about this festival is is the experience, the public experience of watching films with large audiences, often outside in an environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you just never forget. The, I'll never forget seeing Foolish Wives with like thousands of Italians. <laughs> That's and a live orchestra too is the other thing. They often like 
debut new scores, you know, that a composer has, I assume, I guess, been commissioned or, or whatever. But yeah, these are things that I, I, I met one of the accompanists at, at some point in the festival, Maud Nelson, who's a really great, awesome person. She was telling me a bit about it. She's done the definitive score for the kid and she's been in touch with the chaplain estate and oh, cool. um, for a long time. And, you know, it's sort of like, yeah, that, that develop close relationships with the people that are involved in preserving the, the film and, and yeah, it's worked on Mary, this definitive version of, of Mary Widow, another von Straheim film. So, yeah, it, that that's a whole other side of it. You don't even think about the score that um, an orchestra mm-hmm. performs for these big events. I think it's often a huge occasion that it's often the first time or at least like a, a landmark performance of, of those things too. So, yeah, it's just I recommend to anyone who's never been, uh, if you have time in the end of June, it's an amazing experience. But also don't go because <laughs> apparently <laughs> last year it was, or before COVID, I should say, there were like capacity issues and a lot of the people who were there this year were talking about how oh it's not you know five years ago ten years ago it was that was when it was really good you could just walk into anything and they've introduced a ticketing new ticketing system now we have to pre-book things but yeah it's recommended <laughs> so highly recommended but please do not go. Don't go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean Thanks. This has been a real, a real treat. Now I can, in my mind, pretend I've, I've, I've seen some of these. So uh, <laughs> I really appreciate your talking about all of this. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. Please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music. Thank you for listening. Thank you.